It is so good to be here with you this morning. It is a joy and a privilege to be able to share with you from God's Word. And um, as, as the day of truth and reconciliation passed yesterday, I realized that it was one year ago today that, that I joined you here at Hope Fellowship for the very first time. And man, it has been a wild ride in the past year, but God is so good. It has been a blessing to see with my own two eyes teens strengthened in their faith. It has been such a blessing to see the power of the gospel break the chains that keep youth ensnared. It has been such a blessing this past year. And I am thankful for the opportunity and mentorship of of Pastor Josh and the opportunity to be here with you today um, to talk about how everyone is a theologian. I am excited and, um, and to be able to share with you about the Trinity. And now this is a topic that has had quite a lot written about it and there is a wealth of information that spans centuries available to each of us as theologians. I drew from from a lot of that information and so if you'd like to know more about when and where and who um, influenced the sermon, I would be happy to share it with you afterwards. Would you join me in a word of prayer? God, as we turn now to your word, would the flock of believers be edified and would those who do not know you yet um, come to a place of repentance and faith in Christ's name, amen. A couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to be here with you um, on Rev Up Sunday. Only in preparation for Rev Up Sunday, I wasn't reading theology. I wasn't reading any commentaries or the Belgic Confession like I have been this past week. No, a couple of weeks ago when I first came to join you, I was reading recipes. See, I heard there was going to be an apple pie competition. And I thought, man, I got to win that one. So I love to, I love to cook. I love to bake. I love to do all things culinary. Uh, Me and Pastor Josh get along great in that way. But I'd never baked an apple pie before. So what did I do? Well, I went to Google and I read recipes. I read recipe after recipe. I read article after article about different types of crust and flour and sugar and the pros and cons of each one. I decided that if I were to win the inaugural apple pie competition, I would have to think a bit outside the box. And then it popped up on my screen, the recipe to end all recipes, the best recipe for apple pie. Only this apple pie had a twist. It went on the smoker. I followed this recipe to a T. I chopped, I whisked, I rolled the dough, I did everything exactly as the recipe intended. When it came time to to put my apple pie on the smoker, I decided to make a terrible mistake. I decided that I knew better than this recipe, and I decided that, that the time that this recipe would take on the smoker wasn't enough to get a lot of smoke flavor in there. So what did I do? I smoked my apple pie low and slow, like a brisket. There's a reason why 
Apple pies are not smoked low and slow like a brisket. Needless to say, the final product turned out entirely too smoky and it was slightly bitter. See, as theologians, we are quite like bakers. Both recipes and theology are a system. See, as a baker, you might make a terrible mistake like me, or you might use salt instead of sugar and end up with a terrible tasting final product. On a much more nuanced scale, as a baker, you might substitute whole wheat, flour, or almond vegan milk instead of regular milk or flour. Trust me, you'll end up with something that isn't quite right. But just as a recipe is a system, so too is theology. As a church, we have devoted the next several months to studying this system. This recipe will give us the final product of Reformed theology. See, Reformed theology is not unlike that little box of cue cards that sat above Oma's stove. Within that little black box were dozens of index cards with recipes for Boderkuk and cream puffs, mocha tarts, and so many wonderful treats. The Belgic Confession is a system that governs our beliefs. It is a historical document that outlines exactly what it is that we believe. It is one of those little cue cards. We are spending some time studying that recipe. Only instead of ingredients like butter and flour and sugar, we find things like trinity and sovereignty. Today we take one of those cue cards out of our little recipe box and we will see that this recipe is one that draws us in to reverence and awe of the wonder of the Lord. Today we will see how this recipe works and we will talk about how even small deviations from this recipe lead to a very different finished product. See, at the center of the universe lies a wonderful mystery. This mystery is far from just a meaningless whodunit or a source of existential meaninglessness. Rather, it is a wonderful and perplexing mystery whose enigmatic call beckons all those whom he has chosen as his own. This mystery is at the center of the universe. We could fill a whole year's worth of sermons exploring the various nuances and the wonderful corners of this doctrine. But the Belgic Confession covers it in two articles, number eight and number nine. We will read some of those excerpts here today. Article eight reads, we believe in one God who is the one single essence The Father is the cause, origin, and beginning of all things, visible and invisible. The Son is the Word, wisdom, and image of the Father. The Holy Ghost is the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and Son. But in such wise that these three persons are but only one God. They are all three co-eternal, co-essential. 
there is neither first nor last, for they are all three one in truth, in power, in goodness, and in mercy. Article 9 picks it back up, reading, And although this doctrine far surpasses all human understanding, nevertheless we now believe it by means of the word of God, but expect hereafter to enjoy the perfect knowledge and benefit thereof in heaven. Moreover, we must observe the particular offices and operations of these three persons toward us. The Father is called our Creator by His power. The Son is our Savior and the Redeemer by His blood. And the Holy Ghost is our Sanctifier by dwelling in our hearts. Throughout the centuries, many bakers or many theologians have tried to come up with helpful analogies to help us understand this doctrine of Trinity. See, um, some have said that the Trinity is quite like the water in this bottle. Some have said that the Trinity is like this water uh, in this bottle insofar as this water has, it has three different forms. In its liquid form, it is water. In its heated up form, it's vapor or steam. And in its frozen form, it is ice. And we wouldn't call water ice, and we wouldn't call ice steam. But at the end of the day, no matter what form it is, it is still H2O. Although this analogy might seem helpful for understanding the Trinity, it falls into an ancient trap known as modalism. Modalism is the heretical belief that God reveals himself to us in different modes. See, ice, water, and steam are all different modes of the H2O molecule. Modalism was the brainchild of a man named Sibelius, And it was a heresy that was condemned by the early church at the Council of Constantinople. So the mystery of the Trinity cannot be explained by my bottle of water. A couple hundred years later, another baker, another theologian came along named St. Patrick. Eventually, an analogy of the Trinity would be credited to St. Patrick Apparently, St. Patrick said that the Trinity is like a three-leaf clover, three different parts of the same leaf of the same clover. But Patrick, unfortunately, fell into another one of these ancient traps. This one is called partialism. See, Patrick's analogy confessed a God that was three parts of one whole. Patrick's recipe was off too. It turns out that we can't explain the Trinity with a three-leaf clover. So then how can we explain the Trinity? What is the correct recipe? Paul writes this in Colossians 1, verses 15 uh, through 20. Paul writes that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. 
And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The Apostle Paul here gives us some of the ingredients for our recipe. Specifically, today we're going to highlight three of the ingredients that Paul gives us in understanding the Trinity And helpfully for us, all three of them begin with the letter C. The first is this. The Trinity is consubstantial. Now before your eyes glaze over and you tune this part out, this is the most difficult and longest one. In verse 15, Paul says that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The word here that Paul is using, image, is the Greek word icon. And it goes beyond simply being a copy. The term can even be used and is used here to express an identity of essence. Thus, Christ and the Spirit are one essence with God the Father. This is what we mean when we say that the Trinity is consubstantial. It is one essence. This is why we say that God is three in one. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son sharing the same essence. This is confirmed to us in the Belgic Confession and the Nicene Creed. It is one of the foundational truths of the Christian faith that the Father, the Spirit, and the Son are one essence in Trinity. The fancy theological way of saying this is homeo- I'm not going to say homeoesis. That's how you, you say it if you want to be... Um, the fancy theological way. God is consubstantial, but God is also co-eternal. See, God is one essence, and he is also co-eternal. In verse 16, the apostle writes, in him, and he's talking about Jesus here, in him all things were created, whether in heaven or on earth. See, Christ was just as much present and existing in eternity past as God the Father and God the the Spirit. See, before anything was created, before God spoke and brought forth everything that we can see, taste, touch, and smell, before it all, Christ was. The Father was. The Spirit was. They were existing eternally in self-giving and selfless love before there were stars, galaxies, and even a universe. God was. God was self-giving. God was self-glorifying. God was self-sustaining and perfect in all things. 
And it is out of this perfect love. It is out of this self-giving love and self-glorification that then God creates humans to know and experience his love for his glory. In this way, the self-giving love of God is at the beginning of all things. It is at the center of the universe. God is consubstantial. God is co-eternal. God is also co-equal. Paul continues his song of Christ in Colossians 1.19, saying that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And once again, Paul is talking about Christ here. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and and unpack what this means. Because if God is is consubstantial, if God is one essence, if God is co-eternal, then how does it make sense that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in God? A bit of a spoiler alert here. If you have been anxiously waiting each week for what the Belgic Confession is going to say, but soon coming up is the incarnation, God becoming flesh. When we look at the statement that Paul has made through the incarnational lens, his meaning becomes more clear. See, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the person and work of Christ Jesus. See, in becoming flesh, God was pleased to have the fullness of his essence dwell in the person of Christ. There's something really wonderful for us here. When we understand just how radical and life-changing this concept is. See, God is the greatest being to ever be comprehended. The one whose perfection and holiness and infinity far exceeds anything that our feeble minds can understand. That same God became flesh. He became one of us. He descended to a manger and he lived a humble life. He died a thief's death on the cross. And God was pleased to do this. This is radically self-giving. It is shocking. Other religions look at this and say that this is scandalous. God becoming human and being pleased to do so. We've discussed three ingredients, three elements or properties of the Trinity. But here is the thing. The Trinity is a mystery, and it is incomprehensible to us. We can't take this helpful analogy and these three ingredients or properties and tie a nice little bow on everything and say, hey, we got that Trinity thing all figured out. There is a reason why all of those analogies that we talked about at the beginning, the water and the three-leaf clover, fell short. See, the Trinity is a mystery. It is something that we can never fully understand. That's okay. 
It is meant to draw us deeper into worship and awe-found exploration of who God is. Having said that, there are aspects of God's character that we can pull out and seek to learn and understand. See, as theologians, if we're right in our assertion and our premise for this whole year that everyone is a theologian, well then as theologians, we have a duty to seek to understand who God is and what he has done. When we reach eternity, perhaps then we will be able to fully understand. In the interim, we know that God is God is co-equal. God is co-eternal. He is consubstantial. God is. Of all of the facts that are floating around in the universe, of all of the thoughts to ever be thought, of all of the research advancement in areas of technology and philosophy and sociology, of everything that humanity has ever learned or ever will learn, these two words are the greatest fact in the entirety of the universe. God is. Everything that we know Our entire reality, our world, our lives, and our identity stem from the fact that God is. God is. He is the one who sees you struggling with depression and anxiety. He is the one who sees your emotional struggles, who knows just how much your legs and your back hurt. God is the one who sees all of your weariness and all of your despair, and he says, come to me. Let me give you rest. God is. He is without beginning. He has always been. God is without ending. He is the everlasting one, the rock of ages. God is. He is the one who sees you each time that you look in the mirror. He knows the thoughts that you think. He is with you every time that you say or think or feel inadequate. He sees you as good and beautiful and created perfectly in his image. God is. He is the one who has the power to break the chains of sin and addiction, the chains of shame and sorrow that you face. He is the one who has the power to set you free from those things that you never talk about. Drugs, alcohol, pride, greed, lust are nothing compared to the might and the magnitude of our God. God is. He is without comparison. He is greater than all things. The entirety of the universe is nothing compared to his power and his might. God is. He is greater than your worries about work and interest rates and the amount of money you got in the bank. God is. God is ready. God is waiting for you to come to him. God is. 
He is waiting to bear your burdens, to take your shame and your pain and regret and give you life and life in abundance. Whether you have known him all your life or whether this is the first time that you are hearing the gospel, God is. He is waiting for you to come back home. God is. It is the single greatest fact, the most mind-altering truth, the most magnificent two words to ever be said. God is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are. We thank you that you are present and active in our lives and in our world. God, we thank you that you care, that you care for us so much that you would come and live and die and be pleased to do so. God, we thank you for the simple, yet profoundly, universally alternating truth that you are. Amen.